We are honored to have Mr. Ivan Balabanov join us. Ivan has revolutionized the world of dog sports, dog training, genetics. Hello, I made it. How are yes. you? Yes, I'm good. How are you? Ooh, that's not easy. That's my first Instagram live. <laughs> Yay. Okay. So, uh, how are you doing tonight? It's good. It's been busy, very busy, like just like everybody else probably, but had to go to Hong Kong. That's why we had to cancel, postpone the other one and just a lot of dog training and moving dogs that are stuck here because of the virus. And then we have the whole school that I run for dog trainers. So there is a, we're very close to getting them certified. So it's like busy. Busy mm -hmm. yeah. good. a lot of stuff going on. So, so Ivan, can you um, give us a rundown? You've been doing this a really long time and you have household name, you've revolutionized the industry. And um, I would love for you to talk about your background and how it all started. Uh oh, that, that can be a very long Instagram life. <laughs> um, so, gosh, yeah, I mean, it's more than 40 years. It's probably, I don't know. I mean, when I first, and it depends where I really would count when I started anything dogs or when I decided that I want to be a professional dog trainer. So there is a lot of, but I, I would say somewhere in the maybe early eighties is when I was pretty sure that that's what I want to do. And at the time I was living in Bulgaria, which was a, a communist country, which means you cannot just get a ticket and fly somewhere to train dogs. Mm -hmm. And there was no YouTube, of course, there was no social media. So you had to really find really different ways how to do what you like to do. And um, yeah, it was, uh, I basically took a really, really big risk and just escaped the country with, uh, with the idea that maybe I'm going to get caught. And if I get caught, maybe I'll get shot or work in some mind that nobody will ever see me but you know being young and crazy and determined that that's that was my life that's what i wanted to do so i left everything behind and chased my dream and it happened you know so from there i went to i went to belgium and that was um so back in bulgaria i was doing some it's kind of like a like a PSA type of sport. Uh, it's a Russian military sport. Um, so I was, I, I just had that talent and desire to do. So it like within a year or two, there was just no competition. It became really boring for me. So I was like, I, I need to do something. I know I'm good at this. I know I like to do it. So then I went to Belgium and that was, um, yeah, like I'd say 88 or something like that, 88, 89. Um, I got my first Malinois. I wanted a Malinois. I knew that I won a Malinois, but all I knew about them was at the time, just a, a picture from a magazine. And 
dog trainers talking about them. So when I first saw them, you know, I was on, I mean, I was so convinced that I'm going to have one that it, it really didn't matter what I would see. And the first one that I saw, it was very funny because he, he, he had like this crazy overbite. I mean, he really looked like a parrot, you know, but it was a cool dog. And I was like, that's, that's what I want. <laughs> so from there, um, I started, you know, naturally from the, that kind of military training I did, I moved into the Belgian ring programs and yeah, I was fortunate enough to, to meet some of the legends. I mean, as far as dogs and trainers at that time. Um, so it really, you know, like all my risk that I took and all the scare that I had to go through, it really, really paid off like almost right away. I was like, yeah, no, that, that's what you want to do. And so, yeah, as far as Malinois, that was a very, very special time because it wasn't just Bulgaria. I mean, most of the world didn't know much about them. Um, besides the ring circles, the French ring and the Belgian ring and the, the Dutch sports KMPV and so on. But other than that, uh, they were they were not that popular, if if at all. Um, so I, I pretty much grew up in the dog training world along with the Malino, the popularity. Um, so I got my first one in Belgium and uh, I, like I, I made some connections, I met some friends. So it was the, the kennel name is the Diopotois. So I don't know, it's like people that are really, really into the breed, they, that would say a lot to them. People that are starting or not familiar with the breed, that probably will be uh, name that they have heard that doesn't mean much to them, but um, that specific kennel was uh, probably single-handedly like what made the breed boom in the 90s and the late 80s. Um, so, yeah, I, I got to meet the breeder. His name is uh, Luke Vansdebrush. He kind of lives in a French part of the country. And I told him that I want to do sports and want to compete in a high level. And he's, he got excited. It was for me, like when I moved to Belgium, I didn't even speak English. I didn't. So it was pretty hard in the beginning. But on top of that, he only speaks French. So we were like just sign language and, and having always somebody to help us translate. But um, there was a really funny story that when I decided to get my first puppy and I go to him and he knows that I'm going to get a puppy and we see it and it's kind of typical for at least at the time in Belgium, you go and you talk dogs, but you sit down, have some beers, drink and talk. So it was a good time. And then there is this little nice dark male puppy that's maybe nine weeks old, just walking around the room. And I can't get my eyes off of it. I mean, it's like the most gorgeous puppy I've seen. I'm like, I want this one. <laughs> and the guy is like, no, that's just not, that's just a, not a puppy for work. And now I, I really thought that he's just trying to 
think that I'm not going to be good enough for that puppy or something. You know? But anyway, we wait. So he's like, okay, I'm going to bring you the dog that I have in mind. And he brings me this one female. And she's already like probably four, four and a half months old. I mean, it's like a, not that it's still a puppy, but it's a older puppy than the typical eight week old one. And she has this big white chest and white feet and it's just completely something that I didn't think a female and an older and all this white on her. And I'm like, no, I don't want this dog. <laughs> like we were like, and so we had a really, really big like debates, conversations. Like, I mean, almost at the point that I see he's getting upset at me and I'm getting upset at him. And finally, like my friends trying to translate it, put a piece in that whole discussion, you know, because I'm so convinced that I want this one. And he's like, if you're going to do sport, that's the dog you should take. And so he was so cool that eventually what happened, he told me, okay, you take both, take the puppy that you like, take the female. And in two weeks, you're going to bring one back, whatever, whichever one you do. So, of course, um, I mean, within three days, I knew which one. <laughs> so I kept the female. And that was kind of how I started. Um, she she ended up being my um, uh, foundation female for my kennel, the Vitusha Malino. And we had the first, the first puppies was uh, 1989 or 90. Um, so then... From there, I, I was really, this was the time when Monduring started to, basically Monduring got introduced and there was the French ring sport people, the Belgian ring sport people, some Germans, but not that many. Of course, the Dutch crowd and they will meet and they will make demonstrations and they will get in all these fights of which program is better and which exercise from this one should go there. And that was a, a very interesting time in the history of the sports. Um, eventually, I decided that I'm going to move to the States for no apparent reason. Like I didn't know nobody. I didn't know where I'm going to go. But somehow... Belgium just started to be very small for me. Like, you know, in my head, like really no reason for it. And so I started to kind of do some research and I hear that there is a possibility that you can get a job as a dog trainer, like actually, you know, getting paid to train dogs, which at the time in Europe was something people would laugh at. Even when I was leaving Bulgaria, my mom would be like, "You, hopefully you get a job soon because these dogs, that's not going to be, you know, soon, <laughs> you're not going to be good like that. Um, and so anyway, went to the, moved to the States. It was, uh, it was pretty much San Diego, Los Angeles or San Francisco for no reason, like literally for no reason. And eventually ended up in San Francisco because it just somehow sounded better to me at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I started to look for jobs and, and I was not really thinking I'm going to get a job as a dog trainer. Um, I'm like, I, I was pretty good electrician at the time. 
And so I'm walking around trying to find some job. And I see trainers with guide dogs walking around on a street. So I start following them and then I see them getting loading the dogs in a van and I just run to my car and I just really followed them to, to the guide dog school in San Rafael in California. And yeah, I, I'm like, okay, I need to, I, I want to get a job here, whatever job it is, but I'm going to work my way and I'm going to train dogs here. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was, you know, um, so they, they, they kind of laughed at me, but appreciated the enthusiasm, I guess. Mm -hmm. They're like, well, we don't have jobs right now. And there is a process and, you know, we have applications and just kind of being very nice saying that it's not going to work. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but they were curious. I mean, like the accent that I have now, it, it was pretty much the same. So it was interesting for them that it's okay, it's a foreigner and and it's a dog person. So I was like, well, what kind of dog training do you do? And what is the methods? Do you know this book or this, it's just all this old school American dog training books that I've never heard of, of course, because I, I didn't grow up here. I'm like, no, I don't know, but I'm sure I can do better. <laughs> I just always had a very big confidence and big mouth. Um, so, to to make it a little short day i went i went back home i mean it, it was kind of like i i didn't give up but they said yeah we will call you at some point but pretty much trying to tell me that it's just not gonna work out but next thing you know like three days later the training director of the school calls me he's like well do you want to come we want to test you I'm like, of course, I want to come and kidding me. <laughs> like, what time? And so I went, and then they did. And yeah, I ended up taking, getting the job and went through their whole program, being an apprentice and instructor and so on. Um, and that was really good for me in one hand, because I, I really, I didn't know anybody. I didn't have any, you know, like credit card history or anything like this, you know, and that was a very, very well-paid job and very secure job. So it was just beautiful how things were working out always. Um, you know, it's one of those things that, as Bob Marley says, where there is a will, there is a way. And so, but it was very demanding job. I, I learned so much there. I also taught them so much. And it, there were so many stories from from the school at the time. Like it, it was very typical, you know, traditional training. I mean, you cannot the, the the best you can do is maybe praise the dog a little bit, but forget about playing or giving them a treat or something. You know, it was a very like a you know really traditional style, old school, but. That was really, 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 really good experience. Um, like when I teach in my school right now, I have so many stories and so many examples of of how how to train dogs and and yeah, like it, it always always comes to mind. Um, eventually, though, I had to 
you know, I got on my feet and unfortunately I couldn't compete at the time because of the schedule of the school. The school always had a very rigid, just like, just like any school, you know, this is when the students will come. This is when they're going to go home. Now you have vacation. And if, if it happens that there is some competition, great. I was always out of luck. Like all the big competitions for five years, I could not go to. It was really frustrating on, on that end of things. So then I was, okay, I will move on to something else. So then I went back to San Francisco and I got a job at the SPCA, the San Francisco SPCA. And that was a, that was a also very interesting job because it was the first no-kill shelter in the world at the time. And that's early 90s. And in early 90s, there was a lot of people fighting underground, like a lot in the area. So they will do all sorts of riots and bring just 20, 50, 60 dogs. And yeah, it, it was a very interesting experience to, to work there. Um, but it also allowed me to have free time and do the things that I wanted to do with my own dogs. So then I started to do more and more club training and competitions. And people started to see that there is something different that I do. And of course the interest kept growing to the point that I, I literally was forced to stop my job because I just had so many clients and so many places that I can make money that that, that was impossible. I am coming from, <clears throat> you know, from Eastern Europe. Um, I, I wouldn't even say middle class family. Uh, we were pretty poor where I came from. Um, <clears throat> so in my head, it was always, I have to work, I have to make money. You cannot say no to any client. <clears throat> but then the, the moment in time came to where it was, you know, I'm like, no, I, I cannot not say no because I'm just going to train myself. Like I, I will start to hate what I do. So then I stopped the, to work for anybody and then I started my own thing. That was like, a, I think, 98 or 1999. Um, yeah, and and that was also, I mean, talking back to with my parents and my friends in Europe, and it's like, oh no, I just I'm training dogs. They're like, man, you you gotta start to think about your future. You're gonna get old, and you're not gonna whatever. And I'm like, just just leave me alone. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so from there, a lot of competitions, a lot of different, you know. Um, I still kept doing ring sport. I still do. I like it. Um, we trained, uh, I mean, the very first dog that went to the Mondial Ring World Championship was one of my breeding and trained from a puppy all the way um, by me. So that was a pretty cool accomplishment. Um, I did with the female that I had, I did a I did some competitions, but it was not easy because, <clears throat> um, again, with the time that I have, it was difficult to, to find time to train. <clears throat> so 
And what was interesting, I was always making my own training. I always had my own ideas. I always, I always would look somebody training and I'm like, okay, I can do this better. And I can do this better and I can do this better. And, and somehow it was happening. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't just, you know, talking until eventually I started to see that well, I would go to competitions and like in the late nineties, I remember like in San Jose, San Francisco, the, the whole Bay Area there, um, like all the clubs, they would not really want me to go to compete because they have their club trial. They want to, their members do well and it just doesn't make sense for me to go and just take over, you know? <laughs> so, but we are good friends and I help them all the time. But what we agreed on is that I always will enter the last dog in the trial so the judges don't have any criteria right from the beginning. So, um, and then eventually, yeah, I won, I won my first national championship and what is cool about my accomplishments, they are, they are truly my accomplishments. Like I, I bred my dogs, I train my dogs the way I train, not taking anything from anywhere. And yeah, so I won one competition, then I won another one. And then I don't know, I probably have won 15 or 16 national championships. I won two world championships all with those that I breed, all with those that I train. Um, so then, yeah, from, from California, then I was like, I wanted to really have more space. We ended up training a lot of, like it was a very beautiful area right by the Golden Gate Bridge, anybody that lives around there, uh, Presidio, Park Presidio. And I was working with all the police there. So they would give me green light and we would train in this really just the most beautiful place in the world that the temperature is always 70 degrees, no matter what month it is. And then you have the ocean and you have the Golden Gate Bridge and it's just like the really the paradise of places, but it wasn't mine. So I couldn't really, I wanted to have something on my own and, and that's kind of how I ended up in Florida. Um, so from there, yeah, very, very much into breeding, genetics, training, science, all of it. Awesome. Well, <laughs> you have a lot to be proud of. Um, I want to bring this, uh, wrap this into the genetics because it sounds like you are, you have been, you're genetically programmed to be very confident and go for it. You know, when, with the, <clears throat> the first uh, Malinois breeder, you're telling the breeder, hey, I want this dog. He's telling you, you know, take right. that dog. And you're like, no, <laughs> I want this. Or, uh, you know, going to the different countries, not knowing the language, there's, uh, you have to be very confident to put yourself in that position. How does it work with um, the dogs that you select for your, the sports and just how you go about breeding in general? Yeah, so, um, yeah, my story with genetics, it's a, it's an interesting one. Um, 
like when I when I really really got into it, again coming coming with a background from military type of training in the eighties. That's a pretty hardcore, you know, just young and crank training. And then um, kind of the whole positive training came in. Don't shoot the dog came out. Karen Pryor just blew everybody's minds away that positive reinforcement can do everything. Um, so of course everybody jumped on the bandwagon. I mean, who who wouldn't like if you if you really think that there is a better way, why would you not? Regardless of what it is, right? So I spent um, I spent good three four years in it. In fact, the, I wrote a book in the nineties, late nineties. It's called Advanced Shoots Content. A lot of the a lot of my views were still very much the the core was uh, to use negative punishment and a lot of positive reinforcement and you know avoid the aversive type of training. But of course, when you when you actually just um, you don't want to just sound like oh this works better than something else, but you actually have to be able to prove that it does. And that proof always felt short. And I was, uh, I'm extremely good trainer. Like I, you know, I, I don't have problems talking like this because I really am. But if I cannot, if I can use positive reinforcement and shaping and all this, the whole ideology as it was booming at the time, and I was not able to make the results that I want. And I was seeing my dogs getting frustrated, if anything, even though, you know, we were avoiding compulsion and, and things like that. But um, there, was, there was just a limitation. And then there was another thing with, that started to be a very problematic for me. And again, this I teach a lot on, on my modules at the school now for, for the young people that learn. Um, like like the whole Skinnerian behaviorism and how, basically how that ideology came up to today was, you know, there, there was a guy named Watson and, you know, some people know, some people don't, but there, there was like a, a way back in time he had a very famous quote that he, um, you know, the, at the time they believed that you can do anything, you can accomplish absolutely anything through reinforcement and punishment. It's just a matter of starting with a so-called clean slate, which they also believed. So he had a very famous saying that it's still used today that um, if you give me 10 young children, I will make them whatever I want. I'll make them a doctor, a thief, you know, just through that. And of course, now we know that that's not, it just cannot happen that way. And the reason it cannot happen is because of genetics, because all of us actually come programmed with certain things. You know, like when we talk about primary reinforcers, it's a, 
um, we always think of certain things, but one of the really cool things to to look at when you think of primary reinforcers is that it's uh, something that it's innate, something that you don't need to learn. You're coming in it. You're coming on earth, programmed, ready to do it. You know, like like um, um, yeah. There's so many examples of this, but you know, just just like how um, a shark doesn't need to learn that it's a shark. They they know they're shark. Um, you know, you when it's time for you to reproduce, you know that it's time to reproduce. You you, you don't need to learn. You get better but you come programmed with certain things. And um, as dog trainers, that's uh, somehow it's still a very cloudy area and especially young trainers and meaning not young trainers, but uh, uh, trainers that are starting in the industry. Um, of course, some, some very famous trainers as well, unfortunately, but every, a lot of them think that um, you can just just like Watson said that you can change behavior or guide it through reinforcement and punishment and it's just not possible it's just not possible um, certain behaviors that are in your genetic makeup you cannot you cannot change um, you know like in in the early 80s, whatever, the whole gay community, uh, being in San Francisco, I heard all about it. And, and, and I, the interest in genetics and the whole reinforcement behaviorism, um, you know, they were trying to do all sorts of things like they, they will show them a, a man and they will give them a shock and then reward them when they see a magazine with a woman and it don't work. Of course, it cannot work. It's, it, this is against what your genes are telling you, who you are and what you need to do. So um, it, it becomes a very, very big problem with dog training because often dog trainers want to show off how good they are. So if, if something is not working, they just start to press more and demand more. And never really recognizing, never really even looking for what is possible and what is not possible. Um, of course, you can change, you can suppress things, but the moment you allow it some freedom, it go, it, it will go to a home base. And whatever the home base is, you you better know what it is. And the best thing that you can do as a dog trainer is to learn how to guide it instead of try to flip it around and change it to something else. Um, so when you, when, um, you know, I, I just realized more and more the, the power of genetics. Um, there was, you know, like in, in the 60s already, the whole Skinnerian behaviorism started to break down like big time. There were so many cool, cool studies that came up and to show basically that that's not true, that there is 
you know, you cannot change everything through reinforcement and punishment. Um, and also the instincts of the dogs. I mean, it used to be that they didn't even believe that there is instinct, instincts. Then of course, there is the etology and the behaviorism, but eventually what really became very powerful was the evolutionary psychology, which kind of really starts to explain why we do those things. Like for example, you know, if you start walking on the grass and all of a sudden you jump away and you probably just saw a stick or a hose, but that evolution of your success of survival has programmed that very deeply knew that this will be a snake and you will have to jump out. And um, <clears throat> when you, it, yeah, genetics are so, so interesting. I can really talk for, for days and days about it. Um, there is something, you know, even, even people think courage or bravery, Every, everything is really genetic. Like you, you actually have a genetic predisposition to be this kind of person or a dog that when situation comes, it's not that you're not afraid, it's not that you're whatever, but you're ready to put it all in. And okay, today I'm gonna die, that's fine, but I'm in. And that's, that's another genetic thing. And so it's the other one. Oh, I'm gonna just stay away. I am as a puppy, a little bit shy, a little bit unsure. And those puppies suffer a lot and those dogs also suffer a lot. And mostly from dog trainers that don't understand genetics because they are convinced that there is some magic that they will do. And that dog all of a sudden is gonna be the confident dog like the other one. And it, it just ends up sad for the dog that um, this is not recognized and, and providing the, the uh, environment that the, that dog's gonna strive and flourish with. And instead we are trying to fix something that's not fixable and, and just tormenting the dogs like that. Um, and that happens all the time. It, it's, a, it's a, such a bad idea. Um, so genetics really like, um, there was, um, there is a very cool book. And again, like, I mean, we, I don't know, I think at least I have three modules in my school that I talk about this, but there is a book that I highly recommend anybody that's interested in genetics. Um, I mean, there's few books, but let's just say one. Uh, it's Robert Plumbing, and the book name is uh, Blueprint. And there is always the debate about nurture versus nature, right? Environment versus genetics. Which one will, which one is more important and which one can influence the other. And of course they interact with each other so the way genetics work is, um, let's say, um, let's, let's say you go, you, you're not really a gardener, but you take a shovel and you start doing some things. And pretty soon you get calluses. And those calluses there, 
you know, they're genetically ready to come out at the right time. But if you avoid certain things, then they don't need to come out, right? But that doesn't mean that you are really uh, uh, changing genetics. There is just no need for them right now, but they're there at any moment. So um, plumbing did a really, really cool studies, um, almost kind of what I think stumbled upon some accident of in the world war, war in, in England, there was, a, you know, a lot of adoptions. Mothers were just dropping their babies at orphanages because it's a war. And twins, identical twins. And the difference between identical twins and the normal twins is that they are actually, like when you think of cloned animal or a person, the uh, identical twins are basically cloned. You know, they're, that's why they're called identical. It's the, the egg splits in two. And so that means that they are really super interesting material for observation and study for, for this kind of study. Um, the, the one kid gets adopted by some middle-class family. The other one goes to a super rich, well-off family. Nobody knows where the other one, uh, no, no connection, nothing. And it just so happens that one day they meet at the university. They just walk at each other in a hallway. And they know. It's like you don't need to say nothing. It's like, you know. And then they start talking to each other. And, of course, it ends up that they like the same singular music, the same food, the same interest in in science even their wives have the same features like like it's just amazing what starts to come out and besides that sensation of oh this is so cool then they start to really evaluate and it's like okay well how come he grew up in a completely different environment than him but ultimately they're right here and depending on the day when you measure one is a little bit more excitable or more irritated. But then on another day, you know, but they're, they're basically identical. And so next thing you know, there was, they, they are showing them on TV and there is a third one. And that's very uncommon to have three identical twins, super uncommon. But he sees them on TV and he knows, like there is nothing to, you know, there's absolutely nothing to say. He just packs and goes and drives to the university. And um, there is a movie, actually. There is a movie. I, I can't remember what was the movie called, but uh, anybody that's interested in genetics and stuff, that's twin studies are super cool. And um, they, they prove, they just flip everything around. And no matter how you like it or you don't like it, you have to accept it because uh, uh, what, what Plumbing says is very cool. Uh, especially with how dog trainers believe that, okay, I'm going to get the little puppy and I'm going to make him whatever I want. It does not work that way. No matter what you try, there is a genetic makeup that has limitations and has direction. Just like a, a kid that the mom says, no, you're going to play piano and 
and that's you're gonna be really good at it or you're gonna play tennis or whatever the idea is you know um the interest is the interesting thing about genetics is even in those cases when the mom wants to teach the kid to play something or be good at something and eventually get to school and then eventually get the money and so on it's that you know if it's a boy it's gonna end up attracting females and it's gonna be able to reproduce and reproduction and you know it's it's a very important things for the genes so even though you don't know but that's ultimately evolutionary psychology that's telling you this not to go too far off on this one what plumbing says is very cool that he says parents are in uh, parents how how was it parents are important but they don't matter it's a very tricky thing and it's very, very hard to accept. And what it means is it's not that you can live without your parents. Of course, having parents and having nice family that's taking care of you and doing things, it's great. But they don't matter in terms of the, your genetic predisposition. Like, like kids that's going to, you know, somebody's going to start to go through the school system and they parents gonna help them with the homework and get all A's, A's, A's and move on to the high school and eventually work its way college still okay and then eventually they're paying ton of money and the kid is in university and now they either have to somehow continue to help or there will be a very hard check it's like no you really are cannot be just because you want um and and it's the same with dogs it's the same with puppies it, it, there's so many cool studies and especially after this one that i was telling you um plumbing they there i think it's in millions like since the 96 or something they've done this up till right now just extensive studies on on twins and you you know like i don't know if you have siblings but anybody that does or anybody that has kids knows very well that they can grow up they do grow up in the same environment they are taken care in the same way and they still have their own paths and their own interest unless there is that genetic makeup that you know the identical twins kind of thing um, so these the genetics are, you know, super neglected and it goes all the way back to the behaviorism that we are taught that, you know, you can be anything you want to be. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't try, you know, like if you, if you want to be a world champion, you have to say that you're going to be a world champion, I guess. Because if you just are going and now I'm just training to test myself and to see where I am, no, nobody ever succeeds that way. You know, you, you're just putting yourself right there and that's where you are. But it's also not good to fool yourself. There is a lot of, you know, like uh, from, from experience, I mean, I train, I travel all the time and I teach 
so many people that are very successful and so many people that are not. And my job is to look at the dog and look at the person and tell them if they have that predisposition to, to be what they want to be. Because I've been there and I know what it takes. And I know what it takes from the dog. I know what it takes for the personality. You know, like you, you have to know how to deal with stress. You have to, you have to be super like, yeah, it's a, it's such a combination. It's such a package, but a lot of times people don't want to hear it. Um, and what happens also is when somebody says that you cannot, then the next one tells you, oh, I can make it. And of course, it's a, this is a big problem in, in the whole society, not just dog training of, you know, that there is money to be made and there is always both ways, you know, somebody that wants to and somebody that tells them that they can. And, you know, it goes on that way. Um, I know people that are, they have spent 20 years, they have went through maybe 15 dogs and they're still where they are, but they still have that idea that they're gonna, something great is coming ahead of them. Um, but they're getting frustrated and then the dogs are suffering because of that. And I think it's really important to, to recognize where you are and who you really can be. And I don't think it's hard, but you gotta, gotta kind of push out the noise around you because it's always very misleading. Deep inside, you know who you are. Like you really know, like if I know I'm not interested in ice skating. I mean, I like ice skating, as, but I wouldn't do figure skating. It's just no interest for me. But I know kids that would love to do it. I would like to fight or, you know. So another thing with genetics, real quick, um, you can, Let's say, let's say there is a, a, some fighting sport, let's say boxing or UFC or whatever, and there is a champion and he's been champion for quite some time. But he starts to realize that there is, there are better competitors than him. And the moment that comes in your head, you know that you're not gonna be able to win because you're starting to fight or compete against somebody that has nothing to lose and has a very strong will and belief in himself that they are like, let's say they're in the rankings 10th or something like that. They're like, no, I'm really good. I, I can definitely get up there to where the one that it's already on the top and it's starts to feel that there is better than him, then they start to avoid the competitions, then there is all the excuses and and ultimately that's kind of how it gets changed. Um, but when you have the the where I'm going with that story is that the, some something very interesting can happen to to a kid or a dog, like when when we talk genetics. So in a kid example, it's like we can pump and up, pump the kid up and we can tell him, hey, you really, you can be the best tennis player in the world right now. We just need to keep going strong, 
every other day and we hire this trainer for that and that and that. And what really happens again, it's, it's an innate, as a person or as a dog, you know what you can and what you cannot do. But when they push you in that place that you have to perform and meet that uh, um, expectations that's been built up and you know you cannot meet it, what happens is actually quite the opposite. You shut down. You start to go back and you start to look at excuses why you're not going to do it today or next month or next year. So instead of, you know, parents and trainers think that they, they really, really going to build up something, it actually goes the other way around. To give you an example with dogs, and let's, let's take protection training, for example, any protection sports. So if the puppy or the dog is afraid or has some reservation, some awareness of a stick yet, so that, that's, I don't know if I can handle that. So as a trainer, you, you have an option to say, I'm gonna go through this whole program and I'm gonna convince you that it's not gonna hurt. And I'm gonna touch you and we're gonna play and we're gonna spend so much time and we're gonna counter condition and all these names and procedures we're gonna use on you. And sure, eventually you're gonna convince the puppy or the dog that that's not gonna hurt until the day comes that actually he gets stopped and it hurts. <laughs> And now he's not prepared and everything just crumbles in an instant. All this hard work and all this uh, magic, it just goes out just like that. Because the approach is wrong. So the only approach to, to be successful is to see how far those genetics can pull through instead of trying to fool the dog or the kid that this is not gonna hurt or this whatever. No, it can hurt, but maybe you can overcome it. Maybe that's how you will go through. And so training, um, as I said, there is like almost two really distinctive different paths of approaches to training. And most trainers are very busy to teach behaviors, completely disregard emotions, and emotions are super critical because without emotion, how you feel about doing something, do you like to do it or do you not like to do it? Do you feel confident that you're good at it or you feel that you're forced to do? Emotions is probably the more important thing than the actual behavior, but as a typical trainer, Everybody's preoccupied, being with a clicker, being with a electric working level collar, but it's all about behaviors. It's a sit, come back, go to a place, whatever. How the dog feels, what is the motivation? It's almost so secondary that, and eventually it just surfaces. There is no way that it wouldn't. And and then it becomes apparent how important it is. And some trainers make another of it and change and some just do more of what they normally do. But that's, that's genetics. I can really talk so much about it. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting before you went into the, the specific stories, like the, um, the twins 
for the triplets. Um, I, I would think, you know, you going to different countries and working with people that um, you don't speak the same language, that that would kind of give you um, a, a way to con communicate with someone or an animal uh, like on an, on an emotional level, like you don't have to actually hear them talking. You can kind of see them like a movement, yeah. body language. Yeah, that's um, a very good point. That so, actually, I will, I will add feeling a little more to this because uh, again, something like, um, I, I'm super, super big on play. Uh, like I place uh, the, the most important thing as far as I'm concerned as an interaction with dogs. Um, there is trainers that, especially like agility trainers still will fill up a toy with treats to teach the dog to play, which is completely mind blowing. I mean, it's ridiculous. Um, there is the marine sea world type of trainers. Um, they also, they, there's a whole wave of trainers that believe that play is something that you teach something that becomes, you know, reinforced with a primary reinforcement and therefore starts, the dog starts to like it. And play is a super important biological need. Like we, just like we come ready and, you know, primary reinforcers, food, sex, um, sleep, all this, um, avoid discomfort, plays the same thing. It's, a, it's an innate, biological programming that, that we come with, and especially mammals. And all mammals come with that. Very few humans, dogs, for sure, never, it never gets old. It's not like you can see a cow playing ball. You can see like, if you go on YouTube, you can see uh, a dolphin on the open, completely random dolphin and some rugby players from Australia tossing a rugby ball and the dolphin is doing fetch without no, I mean, obviously a wild animal, you know? So we, all mammals specifically are really, really ready to play as youngsters, but as they grow up, it kind of goes away. But play, if you deprive a kid from play, you will, it will not develop correctly. If you, uh, um, Dogs, people, we, we can play and we can come up with endless, like there is an infinite number of games that you can come up with. You will never be able to say, okay, I cannot come up with another game. There is always going to be like a game that you can come up with. And that's to tell you how prepared you are to play. What play does, it teaches cooperation, trust, I mean, when we're talking about building relationship and engagement and all these things that trainers, you know, cliche words with how we do with the food, when you play, you actually build on this and you don't need language. You can, like if a kid is good at playing soccer and he has a confidence that it's good, it's not a made up from his parents telling him, he actually knows he's good. You can, you can take any American kid and throw him in the favelas in Brazil and he would know nobody and it would be the scariest neighborhood ever. 
and within five minutes, he will be playing with the kids, soccer. That's how powerful games are. And, and kind of, that's why I interrupted you because my passion and love for dogs was recognized by other people elsewhere in the world immediately. And the connections and interactions were just, they just kept rolling because of that. So it's a very similar uh, thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I, I actually uh, got your, I think it was the, for the first video I watched of yours was the focused healing video. And um, that completely changed the way that I interact with Rika, with my mm -hmm. Belgian Malinois, who's a year old. Um, really making everything a game and it's made just the whole training experience so much better like more fun more uh exciting and it's not so um like i feel like i'm using my imagination more yeah for you for sure are and yeah, that's exactly there is like a door opens up to where the interaction goes both ways and it's perfectly understood by both of you and the intentions and the emotions to where there is no way you can accomplish something like this in in any other way mm -hmm. yeah so um i want to also ask you where do you see the future of dog training going mm -hmm. yeah so <sighs> That's a, that's a big one. That's bigger than genetics. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I try to stay optimistic. I try to think that eventually we, we can do, we can train dogs in a better way. Uh, we can treat them with respect and somehow unite in in all different areas of like all dog lovers like you know and and protect each other from the animal rights and there's just people that really don't want us to have dogs and they are winning and they're winning because we're splitting and we're fighting these little fights like five people from this and five people from there it's like oh no you're not a good trainer because you're following this ideology and you're something and of course there is truth to that but uh, there is a much bigger picture and we gotta we need to try to stay on track and and support each other and at the same time though i'm very much against um the that there is always that approach of I'm going to tell you that you're a great trainer and I expect that you tell me that I'm a great trainer. And then you're going to tell him that I'm not that great because I'm doing this and this, but then we're going to meet again. And we have, so there is a lot of shady interactions between us. And when, when I, I wish that when somebody sees bad training, they call it and it doesn't matter who it is. Um, if that doesn't happen, I, I don't see how we move forward. And the reason, like competitions are very cool when we have competitions, they're kind of like um, 
you know, like scientists, they go to the lab and they do their experiments and they do their findings. In dog training, you have competitions and the, the competition field is basically the lab. And this is where, you know, you, you talk the talk and then you walk the walk. It's not on the keyboard and it's not how many followers you have and it's not. <clears throat> um, but it's a very interesting time with the social media because um, it's very easy to, to become famous without a base. And then, and then, yeah, you start to teach and you don't know. And there is a, it's a, it's kind of strange situation because uh, there is that as, uh, astrophysic, really smart guy, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson. He has a super cool quote. Let me see if I can remember it right now. Um, <clears throat> a, a great challenge in life is that you, oh man, I'm not I'm gonna butcher it. But it's basically, you think that you know, so you know a, a topic well enough, but you just don't know that you don't know. And if you stay in a bubble, you always gonna think high of yourself and you will not dare to check yourself. But unless you check yourself, you have no progress. You have no evolution as, as a trainer. Then even, even if you have so many followers and, and make people believe and, and you believe in yourself, but you don't go and you check yourself and see where, where, where is my lane? Let's say there is 80 dogs that are gonna compete and I'm gonna go and I'm gonna get ready and I will see if my dog and all the shit that I make up in my head actually where it stands with everything. A lot of people, that's why they train and compete. And a lot of people, that's the reason why they avoid it. Um, and we don't have like, you know, in, in that industry, like having certification is a very easy thing, right? I mean, it's, it's uh, laughable. You don't need certification. You can start your dog business tomorrow. Like there's just so such simple steps. You, you make just two page website, you put a Google ad, you make the social media and you get your first client tomorrow, guaranteed. But if you truly want to be somebody and you want to be good at what you do and get the satisfaction, because there's a whole different level of satisfaction when you actually are good at something and you're teaching something that has value, that you, you, you're really giving something back that makes people grow. It's not bullshitting people. It's really worth it. But there is, you know, like unless, unless this happens, we're stuck in this uh, situation where we are right now. Um, and ultimately, yeah, some people call it electric steam. Some people call it shock color. Then you have, it's, it's ridiculous how we talk about each other and what we do and what we believe, but we never can check everybody would avoid that unless they 
they feel that they're good or they don't mind where they are. They are fine with who they are and where they are. Um, other than that, there is going to be, you know, I don't know if that answers the question really. It's a, it's a tough one. This is a, always a very difficult one to talk about. Um, like I, again, I, I have really nothing to prove, nothing in, in no area of anything that I've done, anything that I have thought of that I want to accomplish, I have accomplished. And I have accomplished it a few times more. Um, so like if I say, well, I don't need to compete right now, why would I? I mean, I've, I've won since like 2000 till today, I have won 15 championships. So that means that there is five, maybe I didn't have a dog, I was on transition, whatever it was. And then I have won a world championship and then I did it again. And I can, I can completely stop and just say I'm, I'm the greatest. But what's the point? Like if you if you stop yourself like that, then you don't progress. Then then the only if you're not going up, you're going down, right? You you're just gonna end up watching TV and eating Doritos and and eventually just kind of die a boring life. But the reason I go and compete is because I always think of different ways how I can stimulate a dog, how I can interact with a dog, how would that, what I'm trying to teach and work with, how is it gonna perform? Is it gonna stand the pressure of all the other competitors and, and being innovative and like it, this is what it's about, you know? So. Absolutely. Ivan, thank you so much for sharing everything that you've shared and also um, inspiring me and everyone that's watching and just the dog world in general. You're welcome. It was fun. Hopefully everybody that listens, go after your dreams. Don't, don't sit back, challenge yourself. It's okay to lose. It's okay to fall down. If you don't fall down, you're not going to get up and go forward. You're just going to stay as most, of the people do so dream high i'm good example make it happen yes thank you thank you ivan yeah see you